You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. Greetings, everyone. I am so thrilled that we are together. It's so great to be proximate with one another, and we've been preparing for this moment uh, for about five months now. So I'm great that it's finally, or so so pleased that it's finally here. I do want to say that uh, my joy this this morning and enthusiasm is tempered by the recent loss of one of our students, Gabby Newman. On the morning of August 5th, Gabby tragically lost her life in an ATV accident. Gabby was studying pre-veterinary medicine here at AU and was planning to be an equine veterinarian. This last summer, she was volunteering at the Kindred Spirits Ranch Rescue, where she worked with neglected or abused farm animals. Her obituary appropriately and accurately reads as follows. Gabriella had an amazing spirit. She was the kindest, sweetest, most loving person She was an amazing girl, just unstoppable. We're going to have a memorial service on August 27th at 7 p.m. at the Equine Center, and I would strongly encourage all who knew or were touched by Gabby's life to come. Can we pray together? Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable and pleasing and to your sight, O Lord, my rock and redeemer. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, it's such a thrill to be with you. And normally at this time of year, the president would get up and give a message sharing about the summer, uh, maybe telling some jokes, relaying some inspiring words. And I love messages like that. I love to give messages like that. But Unfortunately, this is not the moment for that. We're in a very unique time, and this particular moment requires our special attention. So I did not want to waste any time as we got into the semester in sharing what is on my heart. As we enter into this time together this fall, we see some incredibly unique challenges around us. We continue to face a persistent, pervasive global pandemic with no apparent end in sight. We continue to lament the unjust and violent treatment towards black and brown-skinned Americans. The future is uncertain. The unpredictability of the days ahead feels unparalleled. But I want to elevate one challenge above the rest this morning, and that is this, our toxic political environment, particularly as we head into an election season. Now, I highlight this because whatever other challenges we are facing, today's environment and the inflammatory discourse associated with it has such great capacity to disfigure and accentuate and accelerate whatever challenges we do have. You and I know all too well some of the malformed and unhealthy attributes of today's cultural and political climate. Let me mention just a couple of them. 
We could say that our moment is characterized as something like an anti-intellectual dogmatism. One author says that our discourse is characterized by aimless critiques at everything. We see tribalism, factions, rigid, unreflective, outgroup hostility. There's a massive distrust and severely disfigured communication. For example, look at some of the salient elements in today's landscape and how we exchange ideas with one another. The appreciation of nuance is quickly viewed as compromise. Changing one's mind is pejoratively euphemized as flip-flopping or caving or selling out. To be strategic risks being viewed as complacency. Expertise is equated with out-of-touch elitism. What is true and what is false is more likely to relate to what is expeditious. If it benefits me, well, then it's true. If it doesn't, it's false. Related to this, we are less inclined to talk about truth, and we're more inclined to talk about what is trending. And the exchange of ideas simply gives way to ad hominem attacks, where you attack a person and not their argument. In other words, arguments are discredited simply because of the political persuasion of the person given that argument. Now, please don't hear this as a chapel message where I'm lamenting our world and everything's getting worse and things are terrible. I'm not up here to pound my fist on the pulpit, but I am here to make an appeal to you and to the Asbury community in general. And please know that I make this appeal to myself. I made this appeal at the faculty retreat. I'm sharing it with the staff. I'm sharing it with you. And basically, I'm sharing it to anyone who will listen to me. And I will continue sharing it. Here's the appeal. First, as students in a liberal arts community, as students in a wisdom community, I want us to embrace our liberal arts tradition and the intellectual rigor and intellectual seriousness associated with that moniker. I want us to be superior thinkers, robust intellect, robust thought life. Second, and this is really, really important, I want to make a sincere call, sincere call for us as a community to more deliberately elevate our Christian identity above every other identity, every other one that we might have in this season. While I'm discouraged by our toxic environment, I am encouraged because we have the tools to do this. We have the tools to do this well. So let's talk about our liberal arts tradition. Asbury is a Christian liberal arts university. Cornell West says that we need the liberal arts, thinking within the liberal tradition so as to avoid uncritical deference to dogma. That is, we need this liberal arts education so we don't unreflectively commit ourselves to any run-of-the-mill idea. Dallas Willard says this is why skepticism can actually be a good thing. It stimulates claims to inquiry, and moreover, it challenges illegitimate claims to authority. A community that wants to worship God with all of our minds would never commit itself to dogmatism. What's dogmatism? It's when we stop listening. We are chartered as an academic institution in the liberal arts tradition, and for our purposes, 
Being a liberal arts school means that we are governed by what I will call norms of truth-seeking. Norms of truth-seeking. Let me name a few of them. First is viewpoint diversity. We want to understand all perspectives, even the ones that we disagree with. We want to enter into discussions of great thoughts and great thinkers. Now, you might hear that and say, oh, you're just talking about open-mindedness. No, I'm not. That's not what I'm talking about. It's very important to point out there's a difference between being open-minded and listening. To paraphrase G.K. Chesterton, he said, an open mind is like an open mouth. It will eventually close down on something. In other words, the whole purpose of an open mind is to arrive upon a conclusion. The whole purpose of a question is to arrive responsibly upon an answer. So the goal is not an open mind. However, to come to a conclusion, to come responsibly to an answer, you must learn to think and to process. You have to learn to listen. You must learn to discern, to engage views, to engage conversation, to hear from others. The norms of truth seeks a rigorous self-examination, origin, purpose, identity, meaning, morality, destiny. Where did you come from? How did you get here? Why are you here? What's your purpose? How do you know who you are? What's meaningful in your life? How do you adjudicate between what is right and what is wrong? What will happen to you when you die? Rigorous self-examination. The norms of truth-seeking advances evidence-based claims, reasoning, and the capacity to articulate an argument and to articulate it well. I think of all the times when I was in graduate school where I gave an argument, one that I knew my advisors agreed with, but they said, you've got to do better than that. That's not going to cut it. Reason and intellect, philosophical inquiry and logic, the scientific method. How do we arrive at theological truths? In the Wesleyan tradition, to use Albert Outler's words, we do this through scripture, reason, experience, and tradition. And related to this are what I can describe as the norms of persuasion. You see, in a U.S. democracy, our institutions presuppose disagreement. They presuppose we're going to disagree with one another. And disagreement presupposes tolerance. Tolerance is a freighted word. <laughs> it doesn't mean blind acceptance. In fact, it means just the opposite. Jean Beth Elstein at Chicago said, tolerance does not require the suspension of judgment. Rather, it requires restraint. Tolerance and restraint presuppose persuasion. Persuasion is not punitive. It doesn't elevate contempt. Persuasion seeks to compel. It seeks to sway you, to convince you. Persuasion seeks to win someone over, not to roll them over. And finally, persuasion presupposes that some things are right and some things are wrong. The philosopher Michael Sandel says, deliberation is a pale thing if we don't begin with the notion that some ideas are right and some are wrong. Did you catch that? Our U.S. democracy presupposes disagreement. Disagreement presupposes tolerance and restraint. Tolerance and restraint presuppose persuasion, and persuasion presupposes right and wrong. Finally, 
The norms of truth-seeking demand listening, reflection, and introspection. Last semester, I think it was last semester, last year sometime, on our campus, there was a fascinating panel on fake news. And there were some amazing panelists, students and faculty and staff. But Dr. Sidney Pinner, uh, one of our philosophers on campus, asked this great question. He said, what is the mechanism by which I can know that I'm wrong about something? How do I know when I'm wrong? And I wrote down next to that, what is authoritative in my life? Because that will tell me how I know I'm wrong. This is why Tish Harrison Warren talked about the necessity of being governed by modes of authority. Joseph Pieper says it is in these silent and receptive moments that we get a sense of what holds the world together. And it's why Indiana Wesleyan's Emily Vermilia called discernment a holy task. We could use with more silence and reception and stillness and discernment in these days. These are the norms of truth-seeking. These are the norms of a liberal arts community, the norms of a wisdom community, the norms of Asbury University. Now I want everyone (laughs) to pay attention to this next part, please. I want us to turn our attention to the norms of what it means to be a Christian community. There's a theme in Paul's writing, and that theme is citizenship. We see in Philippians 3, he says, For many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is the belly. Their glory is in their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things. But, Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven. And it is from there that we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our citizenship is in heaven. And it is from there that we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Ephesians, he says, you are citizens with the saints. You are members of the household of God. So what does this mean? What does it mean to be a citizen of heaven? What does it mean that we are citizens with the saints? What does it mean that we are members of the household of God? Are these just words? Or does that actually influence, radically transform our lives today. I think it means something like this. It means when you hear comments related to immigration reform and concern for refugees, when you hear comments about care for the poor and for the marginalized, when you hear comments about environmental stewardship, when you hear comments about the elevation and empowerment of women and gender equity, about racial justice, anti-racism, and racial equity. Don't think liberal. Think Christian. And likewise, when you hear comments relating to the lament of the dissolution of family, when you hear people talk about a biblical view of sexuality or sexual ethics, when you hear people talk about the importance of mediating institution to inculcate values, pro-life initiatives, the importance of tradition and governing values, Don't hear conservative. Hear Christian. These are God's themes. Granted, they have a political hue, but they are Christian in their orientation. 
And so let us understand them and discuss them and pursue them in the name of Christ. Let us redeem them in the name of Christ. Don't elevate one at the expense of another. Don't degrade one at the expense of another. Now, hear me out. I'm not asking you to abandon your political views. I'm asking you to demote them. I'm asking that your identity does not rise proportionate to your political persuasion. Our identity must be in the Lordship of Jesus. Let me repeat that. Our identity must be in the Lordship of Jesus. But here's the rub. You see, we say all the time, we're the children of God. We say scripture is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We say Jesus is Lord. But do we believe that? About 15 years ago, I read a book by a guy named Lee Camp. He's a professor down at Lipscomb University. It's a very quotable book, but there was one quote that stood out among the rest. He said, could it be that Jesus is Lord has become one of the most widespread Christian lies? Have Christians claimed the lordship of Jesus, but systematically set aside the call to obedience to this Lord? I want to say this very humbly and very carefully to you. But I often witness men and women who call themselves Christians, who say that Jesus is Lord, but appear to my eyes indistinguishable from a liberal Democrat. And I often witness men and women who call themselves Christians, who say that Jesus is Lord, but appear to my eyes indistinguishable from modern-day conservative Republicans. When we say, thy will be done, he is risen, he is worthy, I want to be holy and set apart. When we come together in hues or in church or other venues to worship and we collectively sing, how great is our God, he is risen, he is worthy, I want to be holy and set apart. When we say Jesus is Lord, when we say these things, do we mean it? Do I mean it? Or is the variability in my thoughts, in my words, in my actions explained by an entirely different kingdom or by an entirely different power and by an entirely different set of values? To this, let me echo the words of James in chapter 3. My friends, brothers and sisters, this ought not be so. Our citizenship is in heaven and it is from there, it is from heaven that we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Savior's in heaven, our ruler's in heaven. God's power is not the same as earthly power. And let me here make a comment about earthly rulers and earthly power. In uh, Hamlet, uh, scene three, I believe it's Rosencrantz, offers this amazing phrase. He was talking about something different Shakespeare was, but the, the quote is, the cease of majesty dies not alone, but like a gulf doth take what is near it with it. The cease of majesty 
dies not alone, but like a golf, takes what is near it with it. I think that is relevant to our moment. You see, rulers die. Kings and queens, they die. Majesties die. They cease. They move on. But they don't die alone. And if you find yourself too proximate to these things that pass away, it will take you with it like a great gulf. When I think of earthly power, I think of something like Ozymandias, written by the poet Percy Shelley. Uh, We'll tell you here, I'm not a fan of Percy Shelley and how he treated his spouse and women. And frankly, now that I know that about him, it's marred my views of some of his love poetry. But I think he got it right in his poem, Ozymandias. The great Ozymandias, the king who authoritatively bellows out, my name is Ozymandias. Look upon my works, ye mighty, and despair. But you see, these aren't the words of a great king. Rather, they are words written across the pedestal of a broken statue, a shattered visage half sunken into the ground, eroding away in a barren wasteland. Our rulers, their power, our power, it comes and it goes. Our earthly human power is impotence to God. Our hubris is a signal of our own destruction. Our wisdom is foolishness to our Creator. Let me conclude. In another lifetime, I was a banker, and I lived in northern Indiana. And at that time, I made a very close friend. Her name was Kathy Royer. Uh, Kathy was a few decades older than me, um, but I really found a kindred spirit. We talked a lot. Uh, We would have lunch. We would share books and philosophers that we're reading. We agreed on some things. We disagreed on others. But she was a close friend. In the summer of 2007, Kathy wrote an op-ed in her hometown newspaper, one that I will never forget. She was talking about the, the neighborhood she grew up in and what a beautiful place it was, a great place to raise a family, a great community. But as we know, no place is perfect. No community is perfect. So in her piece, she was sharing about a recent event where her husband and their grandson were biking along a river. They were accosted by two teenagers uh, who tried to steal the bike from her grandson. Uh, They began to punch and kick him. They stole his bike. And her husband raced in to protect him. Well, they beat him up too and actually threw him in the river. (laughs) She said, he came up swinging. He came up fighting, but they got away. But it was the direction of the op-ed from here that was so powerful to me and what made it memorable. You see, my friend did not call for greater police presence or harsher consequences for criminal behavior. She didn't lament our culture of violence. Kathy didn't lampoon the erosion of safety and predictability in her small town. Rather, She beautifully exercised empathy and grace and compassion. She said, we want all, capital A-L-L, we want all of our neighbors to have the simple necessities of life. She encouraged readers to fight for economic justice, to reach out to each other, to listen to all voices in the community, 
She urged readers to get out and to get to know one another even more. She encouraged proximate relationships. Come near. She ended by saying, look for ways to bring healing and health to our town and every one of its members. Let me describe it differently. My friend Kathy was seen through the eyes of Jesus. In his book, Exclusion and Embrace, Miroslav Volf describes what he calls double vision. He says it is the practice of seeing with the eyes of others, understanding their perspective. And why is this so important? Because, says Wolf, when we're looking at each other through the sights of our guns, we only see the rightness of our own cause. When we are looking at each other through the sights of our guns, we only see the rightness of our own cause. This is a nice quote, but I think we need to walk this out even more to take this from the abstract to the concrete. Edna St. Vincent Millay said, I love humanity, I hate people. (laughs) Can you demonstrate compassion to someone who's violent toward you? Can you see through the eyes of someone who's a threat to you? Can you will the good of another? Aquinas' definition of love, even when they seek to exploit you, this is the politics of Jesus. This is citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. And I don't say these things to you this morning, Asbury, as an administrator in, in an elevated position. I humbly say this to you, and I say this to myself, as we all collectively seek to embody the prototype of the new humanity. This is a unique moment. This fall, this time, this time in the United States, this time in the world, this is a hard moment. This political season is only going to accentuate and complicate the challenges that we have. And we have a lot of challenges right now. I think it's going to get ugly this fall. But as I said to our community this last spring, when we gather together, when our thoughts are animated and our actions are motivated, by a vision of God's redeeming work, when we see time as having a narrative logic, we can do hard things together. Do you believe that? I do. I believe it with all my heart. We can do hard things together as the people of God. My appeal to you, my appeal to myself, is to be different. Be different. Vastly different. Be holy. Demonstrate to those around us a more excellent way, as Paul would put it. Why? Because Jesus is Lord. And here's the thing. Our election this year is on November 3rd, and guess what? On November 4th, Jesus is Lord. Let's be a holy people. Let's be sanctified, and let's be set apart this semester and in the time to come. I'm sorry for perhaps a heavier message, but as I said, I didn't want to waste any time in sharing this with you. Let's be different.